This podcast was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team for the Junior Cycle Talks channel. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Liam Bannon, English and Arts Advisor with Junior Cycle for Teachers. And in this week's episode, I sat down with poet and playwright Inua Ellums. Born in Nigeria, Inua Ellums has internationally toured as a poet, playwright, performer, graphic artist and designer. Thanks very much for sitting down with me today. Lovely to get this chance to have a chat with you. I know you've spoken before about your experience of moving to Dublin. Mm. What was that like and your time in secondary school in Dublin? Was it something that you enjoyed? Did you particularly like English when you were at school? It was tricky. I, I lived in the UK for three years before I moved to Ireland. And what was really alarming was the lack of diversity in Ireland, which made there weren't that many people there, people of color there. So when I started schooling, I was the only black male student in the entire student body. The other black students were my sisters, my twin sister, my older sister. So that first year was really tough. I made great friends. I made greater enemies, I'd say. There were lots of people who were prejudiced and racist, but a lot of it came from ignorance, from things that they had digested from popular culture and I never interrogated or never taught the skills with which to interrogate what it was, what it was they were watching or reading. So a lot of that I hit head first. But I had some really great teachers. My English teacher, who is now the principal of the school, was really pivotal in, in, in teaching me about self-confidence, about what I could achieve. He was one of the first teachers to point out that I, I was good at language and championed me and encouraged me to write, to read very broadly. He was also the PE teacher and the basketball coach. We meant that I would try to impress him with my brain and my body in the classroom and on the court, which pushed me to the to, to nth degrees. And it's probably why I keep writing about poetry and basketball in, in interesting ways ever since, since I became a writer. I really loved most of my time there. I learned life skills, it, it toughened me up. It, and it also showed me what is to be benefited from being vulnerable if you find the right people to be vulnerable with. And I think it's, it's a skill not a lot of men are privy to, which creates huge problems to do with mental health and social mobility and how to carry oneself in large groups of people and where bravado and braggadocia often consumes actual conversation and true connection between men yeah it taught me it taught me a lot I'm still friends with with some of the guys that I made when I was 15 16 17 17 years old there and would you say that was what sparked your love of poetry and writing and art or did something else spark that interest for you? I'd always been an artistic kid. When I was four years old, I was painting and drawing everything. My parents encouraged me to have, to have a hobby. When I came to, when I started schooling in London, my English teachers and my art teachers also encouraged me because they saw that I had an enthusiasm for it. I moved to Dublin and my PE teacher really encouraged me. And I think that's when I learned how to structure my enthusiasm. That's where I glimpsed what it might be like to be a writer. But I didn't really consider it properly until my closest friend in Ireland unfortunately committed suicide in my penultimate year. And he was the student 
the person I was most literary with. We read together. He sat beside me in most of my classes, actually. And when he passed away, the first time I sat down to compose something was an attempt to remember some of the conversations or arguments or heated discussions we'd had as an attempt to memorialize him. And that was when I was conscious of wanting to write and wanted to be a writer. But even then it was just a little bit far-fetched until I returned to London and um, was introduced to poetry communities. In relation to where you get your ideas from, where do they originate and what does your creative process generally look like? I get a lot of my ideas from asking myself, what if, what might have been, what was, what do I think was, where does memory meet truth? Where does fact meet fiction? I think about that 1998 movie with Gwyneth Paltrow called Sliding Doors, which is running to catch a train and misses it. And the movie takes on a departure where it tells two simultaneous stories of what had happened if she had caught it and tells the story of what happened if she hadn't caught it. So now and then, that is, those are my, that's where stories begin or poems begin for me. I go back and think what if and chase that thought down a rabbit hole. And you, you learn things about what makes poetry, how to create suspense, tension, imagery, metaphor, to be sensorial. And all of those confirm or create patterns through which I chase that thought. And that is often what poems are. They are the end products of running these variables, these mind maps in my head. Um, so a lot of stories and poems and everything from TV stories, um, TV series that I'm working on to short narrative points come from that um, impetus. Yeah. Do you find that when an idea starts to form in your head and you're, you're speaking it aloud or you're trying to get it onto paper, is there a lot of editing and drafting involved or do you find that it flows naturally? No, I edit like hell. I edit and edit and pristine and write and file and soften and everything. I think it's crucial. The editing process is where writing really begins. Before that, you're just having fun. You're just word dumping. You're just bringing lumps of wood into your house. The editing process is when you sculpt it into something. You chip away at the bark and what is truly within it emerges. So I edit a lot. Editing takes a long time. It's, that's partially because of how dense, how densely I write sometimes. The various literary illusions or or social parallels I'm drawing from things. So it takes a long time for me to write. And I'm always working on multiple things at the same time because I like to give the editing process the time it needs for the products to fully emerge. So yeah, I edit a lot. I love that. That interpretation of it is, is fantastic. On your website, you're described as a touring poet, playwright, performer, graphic artist, and designer. Mm. Do you still do all of those things? Or would you say that your success as a poet and a playwright, that is now what your main focus is? That is definitely my main focus. I still design things, mostly when friends or acquaintances of mine reach out to me. I rarely do things for complete strangers, even though a lot is offered to me. I still tour, I still perform. I haven't been able to do so because of the pandemic at the moment, but I still tour. I go to festivals, digital festivals across the world, sharing work, teaching aspects of creative writing, really encouraging people to write from your cultural backgrounds, even if when you're writing in English, I ask them to translate their culture into the sort of the the English cultural landscape and lexicon rather than to just write within that. I think of writing as a process of translation, of translating who you are and who you believe in 
into words which sometimes are really blunt instruments. And that is, and I say that even though I was born into the English speaking world, I'm doing running exercises in writing in Romania, in, in Colombia, in India, in Pakistan, I do the same thing. Firstly, I ask them to write in their, in their local languages because then they consolidate and they incubate a lot of their cultural specificities. Then I might ask them to translate it into English so that they don't, they don't just skip out skip things about themselves in an effort to write into English. Do you think words and the power of language are something that's really central to our identity as well? Yeah, I, I really think so. There's a friend of mine, she's, she's German and English, and she's very fluent in both languages. And she talks about how whenever she goes to Germany after living in England for a, a long amount of, a, a long period of time, her German friends ask her why she's so overtly polite. And when she comes back to England after living in Germany for such a long time, her English friends ask her why she's so rude and why she's so blunt. And what I'm trying to say is there are ways of being that are specific to languages because the language contains worlds and ways of being. And this is why I think some of the most culturally and cerebrally fluid people are those who are, who are multilingual because they understand other ways of being. They perceive the words through other filters. Yeah, I really, I really think so. Language is so crucial to, to the ways we carry ourselves through the world. Definitely. Barbershop Chronicles had two sellout runs at the National Theatre, which is fantastic. Congratulations. Who would you say are your main audience? I'm not sure about that, if I'm honest. I think I have various entry points into my work. Those who understand me purely as a poet and come to me for that. Those who understand me as a dramatist and come to me for that. Those who understand me as a comic book fan who come to me because of the various ways in which I carry that thought through in most of my work. Those who come to me as a visual artist and understand how visuals play such a key role in my work. But because I was born in Nigeria, I have a huge Nigerian audience. And because Nigerians are migrational creatures, we are scattered across the world. So I have Nigerian fans everywhere, pretty much. In Ireland, here in England, right across the Americas, in Holland, in, in, in France, in, in Egypt, in etc. And then everyone who is loosely aware of the huge cultural footprint Nigeria has then are my audiences and it comes to my work because of that. But also I live here in London, in Europe, in this massive cosmopolitan city where their cultural parallels find in Ghanaian culture, in Romanian culture, in Irish culture, parts of Italian culture. So all of those audiences are also my audiences that come to my work. So I don't know who my audiences are, if I'm honest. One of my writing principles is to assume that one of my editing principles, sorry, is to assume that when I'm writing a story, I'm, I'm writing it and telling it to people who already know the story. All I'm doing is cleaning up the language a little bit, making it sound more mellifluous, more musical, more fancy. So therefore, there's this really democratic approach I have to the stories that I tell and the ways that I construct those stories and what it is to share those stories, which is why I enjoy working in theater. It's truly a democratic process. You have 50% um, of the work is the play. The other 50% is where the audience meets the play in the sharing. So I like to think my audience is, is global because I am a global creature. I'm an immigrant. I've migrated and lived in so many 
different places and under so many auspices and guises that I think it underpins my work. And throughout your teenage years, you had written before that you had gone through a crisis of identity. Do you feel that now, having gone through that process, you found the identity that you're most comfortable with? More or less, I think so. I think so, yeah. I think I've accepted the fact that I'm not Nigerian enough for many Nigerians because I've lived here since I was 12 years old. I'm not British enough for any for, for British audiences. I'm not European enough for the vast members of the European com- community. And I'm just this variable. Malcolm X named himself Malcolm X to point at the lack of his history. The X is the variable, just like the X-Men is the thing that can become anything else. It marks a spot. It's a black hole through which a lot can be understood or misunderstood as a lens of seeing the world, which doesn't hold um, the world itself. And I like to think that is where I thrive at in being adaptable, being chameleon-like. And and as an identity, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Your text, The 14th Tale, is currently an option on the prescribed text list for Junior Cycle English. So for those that might not be familiar with this text, could you tell me a little bit about it? In many ways, it's a very simple coming-of-age story about a natural-born troublemaker based on my life. It's 80 to 85% factual, 20% fiction. And a lot of what happens are pivotal points in my life where I learned something about who I was and I sought to defeat the foes or the imaginary foes that I had. There are high stakes involved. It's very funny. There are lots of pranks, the ridiculous things I got into. But it's about understanding what it means to be an adult and about responsibility. It's lyrical. It's visual. It's rich in detail. It's it's a juicy text to write and, and perform when I used to perform it. Yeah. And can I ask, where did the title come from? I wrote a book of poems called The 13 Fairy Negro Tales. And when I was asked and finally commissioned to to create a play to stitch a loose narrative through those 13 poems, and it didn't work, it was really terrible. So I thought I'm going to write something new and larger, and I'm just going to call it The 14th Tale. So yeah, it was a sort of callback to a previous body of work. And it seems that your work disrupts the idea of more traditional forms of writing and expression. Is that deliberate? Is that something that you aim to do? I wasn't conscious of it at the time. I was just writing as I felt and I didn't care. And also I didn't know what I didn't know. And which is, which meant that I was fearless in what I was writing and in doing so I was disruptive naturally. But I think now I'm an older writer, I'm an experienced writer and I've, I've read a lot of books about writing and I've understood what younger Inua was doing and how wildly and daringly he was doing it. And I want to go back to him to a certain extent, <laughs> yeah. How might the dramatic nature of the play be brought to life in the classroom? if students wanted to study us and interact with us? I think there are a number of ways. One, to give passages to people just to read the text and stand up. Another is to allocate some characters to certain people in, in the classroom, for instance, so that when it comes to them, they can play out, they can play out the drama of it. When I was performing the show, it was just me and a chair and a torchlight, and that was it. 
So in order to dramatize it, you really don't need much. I think you just need an awareness of your physicality and how to use it to transform into other characters, the deepening your voice, the broadening your chest, to stand upright, to sink lower in your point of gravity in order to become other characters, to think about how the breath passes through the body and then play that out really. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think you can read it as a text together in a classroom or you can allocate characters and then read it communally. I think it, it works both ways. And in terms of stagecraft, would your preference be for the more minimalist where it's potentially just the character or set of characters and maybe they're not influenced as much by lots of different props of different sorts yeah. or is it a combination of both? I think the text works both ways. It's written so richly and so visually that the play can benefit from just the text itself. The audience, if you're listening keenly, can imagine all of those worlds that I wrote it deliberately um, as such. But I think it's for the director and the class to decide how much they want to throw at it to, in order to make the richness of the language hit harder and sink deeper. Your power of description is so beautiful. Were you always an avid reader when you were younger? Yeah, I did. When I was eight or nine, I was reading things like Great Expectations and The Tale of Two Cities. I was reading way beyond my years. And one of my favorite books was the Argos Catalogue because it was full of pictures that I could make stories with. And my sisters and I would do that as an exercise. We'd construct huge armies with which to batter each other, which meant that we were describing, we were using the toys, the pictures of the toys themselves, the pictures as totems, and using them as seeds with which to grow a whole forest of stories with hurl at each other. So I grew up building stories out of pictures and that really informs the way that I work. Yeah. I think one of the, the sadder things of recent years is moving the Argos catalogue fully online. So you don't get to get the big book in the store anymore. It's so devastating. Can I also ask you, obviously, as you've moved and you've mentioned earlier that you've migrated to lots of different locations, what does the word home now mean for you? I think it's just where you feel safe. And that can be anything. Sometimes... My laptop is my home. When I'm connected to the internet and, and all of human knowledge is beneath my fingertip, it feels safe, I feel untouchable. Sometimes when I'm writing, I'm constructing a universe. And for that moment, I am God, which means that I'm untouchable. I can make mistakes and throw away the universe and start again. But I think home is just where you feel safest. And sometimes it isn't a location. It isn't a place even. Sometimes it's just a memory and you return there. What might be nice is as a final piece, if there was a selection or a particular extract from the 14th tale, perhaps, that mm -hmm. you might like to read for us. This is the section about Donna Lord, which is one of the love interests in the play. Her name is Donna Lord and she had lashes that lays the world. Hair that cascaded crazily, locks that kept me captive. I did not seek freedom. I wanted to stay captivated by long looks and a flowing mane of wild stallions formed of powder puffs and pouts. She was gorgeous. We met at a night ordained by the ordinary. The stars reflected in the window pane dribbled mere suggestions of light that mingled with the rain. I told her that I would like to see her again and lip printed her left cheek. A week later, sheltered from London's lazy rain, we first kissed, 
our tongues like dancers, lips the dance floor, hearts beat in the backing track, the tongue tip tangle, kissing as though shango flung, small sweet and lightning bolts between us like fireworks flavored mangoes. In this fruit frenzy of lightning shift, she tells me that she does not do relationships. I should have sent alarm bells ringing, but I was caught between wild stallions and electric mangoes. All I remembered was a comma in a cascading kiss. Besides, no strings attached loving was a luxury I could not miss. So I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Fantastic. Inua, thanks so much. Even just listening to it being brought to life there completely just changes it from when you read it on the page yeah. first. <laughs> so thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation with you and the very me. the very best of luck with future projects and hopefully we'll all get back into a theater soon absolutely <laughs> thanks Liam. thank you for listening to this podcast which was created by the arts and junior cycle team for junior cycle talks podcast channel to hear more from junior cycle talks search for us on soundcloud or anywhere you listen to your podcasts